0: What I thought I might do today is, um, we have a very short PowerPoint, basically going to show you some pictures, some highlights of uh, Jonathan Edwards and uh, his home, a drawing of his home and so forth, where he was born and so forth, tell you a little bit about him. And then what I want to do is to read uh, just some excerpts from some of his works and some of his uh, writings and what he had to say. And, uh, then, I, I also, in there, uh, want to, this thing's dropping, isn't it? Um, in the midst of that, or else I was getting taller, which I was kind of feeling good for a minute, but then I realized, no, it's, it's, uh, so, uh, and then I want to tie it in with a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 when we talk about, uh, the issue of the Lord's Supper and what actually turned out to be a kind of a controversial, um, subject in, uh, his, uh, first church, actually his second church, he pastored a, That's oh, it's fine, it's fine, this'll work. Yeah, I think so. Okay, thank you. Um, thanks, Louis. Um, if, uh, <laughs> what did I do? I don't know, y'all laughing. Um, but it's uh, talking about... Th- his first church was a Presbyterian church when he was very, very young, around 17. But uh, the church that he served for the longest period of time, there was a controversial issue. And we'll look at, to the scriptures uh, to talk a little bit about that. But we are studying uh, Jonathan Edwards. And you might recognize this picture... From last week, those of you who were here, and this is a picture of Jonathan Edwards. He was born in uh, New Windsor, Connecticut uh, at a very early age. And uh, I'm just trying to wake you all up a little bit. Just he was educated at home. He was uh, one of the first homeschoolers, apparently. But uh, he was educated at home by his mom and dad uh, and also his sisters. He was one of 11 children, the only boy. So I wonder what that was like in the house. You know, Was he spoiled or what? We don't know. But uh, I think he was about f- number five or so in there. But he was the only boy, 11 children. Uh, his parents and his sisters uh, chipped in in the education. But then he started, at, uh, started the Collegiate School of Connecticut, which later became Yale University. And he entered when he was 13 years old. So these, um, these people... That God used in the founding of this nation were amazingly intelligent, amazingly brilliant. He was already fluent in uh, in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin by the time he started college. I mean, we do well if we do that in graduate level, but he had already become fluent in it by the time he started uh, started school. He was married to Sarah Pierpont. I, people speak French? I know we have some people that speak French in here. Did I say that right? I'm assuming that looks French, but I haven't, I haven't been able to find any recordings that said her, her name yet, so I'm not sure, but uh, I think it's Sarah Pierrepoint, And that's the first break that I would uh, like to take here. He was 20 years old. She was 13 years old when uh, he first laid eyes on her. And uh, it was a wonderful, beautiful marriage that he had with her. They were married four years later, uh, so uh, he was considerably older than her. But they had a wonderful marriage. And they also had 11 children. And uh, Jonathan Edwards was known to come home uh, about an hour or so before dinner and spend time with the children. When he would go travel, he would normally take one of the children with him uh he and sarah would go for rides in the countryside on horseback just to spend time with one another and uh, it was truly a uh, a wonderful wonderful marriage and romance i would like to uh read uh from one of his diary entries about how he thought of this woman this was before he was actually married to sarah but uh just listen to the words of this man that uh that was very very tall very gangly uh, was not the uh, real people person. Sarah ended up being the real people person. But listen to these words and, and the depths of his heart and how he could express uh, how he felt about Sarah. This was uh, written in 1723. And she was, again, 13, and he was uh, 20 years uh, old. They say there is a young lady in New Haven who is beloved of that great being. "...who made and rules the world, and that there are certain seasons in which this great being in some way or other invisible comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight, and that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. She is of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind." She will sometimes go about from place to place, singing sweetly, and seems to be always full of joy and pleasure. And no one knows for what. She loves to be alone, walking in the fields and groves, and seems to have some uh, seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. So even at an early age, his uh, wife to be, Sarah. What had a deep faith in God. And um, like I said, the couple had a wonderful marriage that uh, lasted um, for many years and through lots of different challenges uh, along the way. So, there's about his wife. There's his house. It's a little drawing. Uh, couldn't find any photographs. Um, but it was a drawing made by someone. In fact, um, uh it said Jonathan was born at home, which was obviously very common in that day. In 1726, he accepted the call to um, the Congregational Church in Northampton to serve with his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. And uh, Solomon was well known, well respected in the community, had been at the church for a long time, uh, was very popular with the people. And uh, one of the reasons why he was so popular with the people is because he had open communion. When they would have communion at the church, uh, he was not uh, very diligent as far as insisting that someone necessarily had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which is really essential for uh, the Lord's Supper to really have any meaning, really. Uh, But he didn't insist on that. But remember when we talked about the Great Awakening last week, We said that there was a problem. Remember the halfway covenant that we talked about? And what was the the halfway covenant uh, brought about to solve? Well, many ministers were concerned that many of the children of their membership, of their members, were not professing faith in Christ and not presenting themselves to the church for membership. So therefore, the halfway covenant, 1662, I believe it was, Uh, said, well, you know what, we'll just go ahead and baptize the children of members in good standing anyway. And so they'll be members of the church. Well, consequently, as we said, what kind of an effect is that going to have on the church? Uh, Well, basically the effect that uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, came to see whenever he took over the reins of uh over from his or when he first came to the church still serving as an assistant pastor with his grandfather and then when his grandfather died just 4 years later then he became the pastor of the church but what he found was that the people were very spiritually dead the church was dead uh they did not have a passion for Christ uh they were not living in the fullness of the spirit it become mundane mundane it become just dead orthodoxy dead religion and so that's what faced him you know, at that time. Whenever uh, his, his father high, high, highly respected, his grandfather highly respected in the congregation as well as the Native Americans. And a few years later, Jonathan Edwards would also have the opportunity to minister to the Native Americans. So maybe that's where some of the seeds for a, a heart and a compassion for these people, the Native Americans of the, of the country uh, those may have been planted by his grandfather. But then later on, he went to go work uh, the ministry that David Brainerd had started. And I will tell you a little bit about those circumstances uh, in just a, a few minutes. When Edwards took over the pastor of the church, he found the people's spiritual, their spiritual life very dry and stale. Edwards began preaching about the absolute necessity for spiritual renewal and a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ. He began to see changes in, happening around 1733. But he, interesting, he started a series on justification by faith. Remember we said that uh, one of the outcomes of the Great Awakening was a resurgence of Calvinism. And for some would say, well, wait a minute, Calvinism doesn't seem to go hand in hand uh, with revival uh, because you know it's talking about the sovereignty of God that we are... Uh, sinners, totally helpless. There's nothing that we can do to be saved. It's only by the grace of God and coming into a relationship uh, with Him. But the emphasis on the sovereignty of God and that we will give an account to Him was what resonated with the people. So he began the series of messages on justification in in 1734, and then the seeds of the revival. The revival began to take place as people were. Uh, uh, were, were ministered to by these messages. Here's a couple copies of his actual sermons. Well, one, one, the one on the right is actually a, a printed version that a printer had produced on the message itself. The one on the left is actually his handwriting showing uh, what his sermons looked like and, and uh, what his writing was like and what he read from whenever he uh, uh, delivered his sermons. By the way, he read his sermons. He, just, he was not... Uh, He was not a real animated uh, speaker and so he would literally sit behind the pulpit uh, with his spectacles on, peering over his spectacles, but reading uh, the entire sermon. And that's exactly what he did with the uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. And what was so amazing about that is that it was so anointed that people were literally holding on to the backs of the pews, so convicted of their sin and, and their need for a savior. It was, it was truly uh, an amazing work of God. When Edwards was asked to leave the, North, uh, the church in Northampton, he then went to work as a pastor in, uh, to the settlers and missionaries, uh, missionary Indians in uh, Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And once again, that was the ministry that David Brainerd uh, started. In uh, 1757, he accepted the presidency of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton. And uh, he died on March 22nd, 1758, from complications from an experimental smallpox vaccination. And uh, obviously, it it didn't work like it was supposed to. And um, he was, uh, through all these, let's kind of now backtrack. I gave you a little uh, uh, overview there. Uh, The reason why he was asked to leave the church in Northampton was because he started insisting that people be Christians to take the Lord's Supper. And that didn't sit well with the people. Even after he'd been there over 20 years, uh, when he said, wait a minute, something's wrong with this picture. And that's what I wanted to just look at for just one second here. Uh, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because it's amazing, and, and as we consider the Great Awakening, as we looked earlier at the Reformation and the works of Zwingli and Luther and Calvin, and and uh, uh, then we, we come now uh, many years later and uh, we're talking about the revivalists, in uh, the United States, you know, as we look back, we can see how God used these people in a mighty way. Even Solomon Stoddard, who the grandfather of uh, Jonathan Edwards, but we can also look back, and when we put it against uh, the light of Scripture, we can see that they didn't always get it right. They didn't always they didn't always have the right perspective, and and we can only. Um, Uh, ...speculate as why, when something would seem to be so obvious, why they wouldn't get it. Uh, But nevertheless, uh, they didn't. One of the things, obviously, was the issue of the Lord's Supper. Why Solomon Stoddard did not really uh, insist that the people be Christians... ...to take the Lord's Supper uh, is a mystery. Because it's clearly in Scripture where it is important... To look at one's relationship with Christ and consider that even for the act of worship that we call the Lord's Supper, in fact, when we take the Lord's Supper here, it's, it's we're in a big place and we pass out these these dishes and and uh, uh, or, or these baskets and they've got the the juice and the little all self-contained, really convenient, you know, expediency. You know, that's the thing of the, of the day. And you take that and you peel off the top. You got your bread and you peel off the uh, next layer and you got your juice. And, 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 and sometimes it's kind of tacked on sometimes in the service. But you know what? What we see in Scripture is it was central to worship. It was not just tacked on. It was central. And, and, and for what it represented. Because it was an act of worship and it's intended today to be an act of worship. Now, the scripture does tell us that one day when the Lord returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Those, unfortunately, that will be too late for, because they did not receive Christ in this life, but they will still acknowledge, yes, there's no doubt, He's Lord. He is the Lord. As well as those who have a personal relationship with Him, and, and they did uh, come into uh, faith in him. And they will be announcing it because out of the relationship that they have with him. Some will simply be acknowledging his rightful position, but they have no relationship with him. The others will be announcing it out of that relationship with him. He is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. Okay? Well, it's essential that when we consider worship, who are the ones that can truly worship God? Only those who have a personal relationship with him right? Remember the uh, the account in Scripture, John 6, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and He said, you know what? One day it's not going to make any difference whether you worship up there on that mountain or if you worship down in Jerusalem, because uh, the Lord is looking for those, and He seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And those are the true worshipers of God. The Lord's Supper being an aspect of worship. In 1 Corinthians 11... Uh, beginning in verse 23, he says, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the blood the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself. If he does not judge the body rightly, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. What do you think Paul meant by that? Dead. Dead. That's right. Some have died. Wow. And we believe that, you know, obviously God does not hold people who do not have a relationship with him to the same standard as those who do have a relationship with him. You know, when we sometimes we get upset with lost people because of how they act, well, They're just acting like lost people. Why do we get all upset with them? We need to get upset with the ones who supposedly know better and have a personal relationship with Christ, and they act that way. Uh, And then only then, God only knows what's truly in their heart. But I understand this in this passage and in this context that there were those who had a personal relationship with God that still were so flippant in their relationship with Him, were living ungodly lives... And even coming to the time which was a celebration and a remembrance of what God had done for them and the ultimate sacrifice and just gorging themselves and just being haphazard with the Lord's Supper, that the Lord just said, you know what? You're becoming more detrimental to my cause and I'm just going to take you out. Go to sleep. So he takes it pretty seriously. Do you get the impression that he takes the Lord's Supper pretty seriously? He says... Um, verse 31, for, uh, for if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home so that you may not come together for judgment. So see, even when they had the Lord's Supper and it was actually a whole meal, there were some people that were getting there early and, and eating all food. They are eating up all the chicken before the others could get there. And he said, look, if you're just coming to go ahead and have a meal, go ahead and eat at home so that you're not hungry when you get here. Because, yes, it's a meal, but the purpose behind the meal is much more significant than just feeding your bellies. And so that's what he's saying. Now, the reason why I read that passage is because we see there the Apostle Paul was giving clear instruction that we are not to be flippant with the Lord's Supper. If there was a whole church possibly full of unregenerate people or people who had just become apathetic in their spiritual walk and in their life with Christ, and they're in there, and Solomon's daughter, the the pastor of that church, did not help them to go deeper in their faith in that respect. So he made, uh, uh, he, he, he compromised. He compromised on that issue. Well, now comes along his uh, his grandson, and takes over the church, and as Jonathan Edwards, being a, a deep student of the Word and began to study and, 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 and had convictions about what he was preaching, what he was teaching the people, how pastors' heart wanting them to to go on to faith in Christ and, and to not settle for spiritual apathy and coldness, he began this is one th- measure that he takes, and it ends up costing him. Uh, his position at the church. You know what's amazing about that? Is that that was in 1950, or I mean, 17, not to 1950, 1750, and he'd already been there 20 some years, and that was after or near the end of the Great Awakening. So even when he was there at that church for the Great Awakening, and they experienced spiritual renewal, but then when there was one particular doctrine that he really drew a line in the sand, the people rejected it, and they still rejected him as their pastor. Remember what we said last week? One of the things for the points for home was that you can't constantly rely on the work of Jesus Christ in years gone by. It has to be a daily refreshing. It has to be daily walking with Him. Because, see, if you rely on some past experience, even an experience that they must have been absolutely amazing for those that were in the Great Awakening, even an experience like that, eventually your hearts can drift away from the truths even of God's word, even in that time. And so Jonathan Edwards, when he confronted them and and said, you know what, we're not going to just open this up to everybody, They said, no, 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 we're not going to accept that. I want to read some excerpts from some of his works uh, to you. I just read uh, one from his diary uh, here uh, in in this book. Uh, I want to read now from... uh, Uh, His work called Some Thoughts Concerning the Present Revival of Religion in New England 1742. This was Jonathan Edwards giving his opinion on what was going on. Because you see, there were some people that were saying, Oh, look, this is just emotionalism. And it's not real, and it's just a passing fancy, and and all these people are just getting all emotional, and that's kind of dangerous, and you can't base things on emotions, all that sort of thing. So Jonathan Edwards, in the middle of this, who was an intellectual and a philosopher wrote this work to say, look, I want to tell you what I think is going on here. This is how I assess it. Okay? Now, I just thought, before I read that, let me read um, one other uh, short passage to tell you what was in his heart as far as what he wanted to see happen in the hearts of people. Um. He says, uh, this was in his uh, A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections, which is in 1746, he wrote this, he said, The kind of religion that God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless woodings. W-O-U-L-D, wood. I would, I would, yeah, I would. He said it doesn't consist in those woodings. Those weak inclinations that lack convictions, that raise us but a little above indifference... God in his word greatly insists that we be in a good, earnest, fervent in spirit and that our hearts be engaged vigorously in our religion. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Romans 12, 11. So you see, you get a glimpse of what was in his heart there. He said, look, we, we, we can't just have this dead religion. That's going on. We can't just uh, settle for this. And he wanted so passionately, passionately for his people to understand that and to get that. And then it was under that, even with his dry way that he presented his messages, that the Holy Spirit anointed this man, chose him of all the ones that he could have used, chose him to be the, uh, one of the primary players in the whole uh, uh, Great Awakening. Now, I want to read again from some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England, 1742. Some make philosophy instead of holy scriptures their rule of judging uh, of judging of this work, and though they acknowledge that a good use may be made of the affections in religion, yet they suppose that the substantial part of religion does not consist in them, but that they but that they are rather to be looking upon as something uh, of accidental or accidental measures in Christianity. So he's saying, look, you know, it's not just don't look at it just from the rational intellectual perspective. He goes on to say, if we take the scriptures for our whole rule, then the greater and higher are the exercises of love to God, delight and complacence in God, desires and longings after God, delight in the children of God, love to mankind, brokenness of heart, abhorrence of sin and self abhorrence for sin and the peace of God that passes all understanding and the joy in the Holy Ghost. Once again, he goes on and says, It is not unlikely that this work, talking about the Great Awakening, this work of God's Spirit, that it is so extraordinary and wonderful, is the dawning or at least a prelude of that glorious work of God so often foretold in Scripture, which is in the progress and issue of it shall renew the world uh, of mankind so he had great expectations of what it was he said look something very special totally of god not of man totally of god is happening here now remember, remember george whitfield was the primary one that went the preacher that went up and down the coast and all around new england that was preaching in these churches where the re, the flames of revival were really spreading but you know it 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 kind of started under Jonathan Edwards' preaching. One last passage out of, that, out of that work. This work, talking again once of the Great Awakening, that has lately been carried on in the land is the work of God and not the work of man. Its beginning has not been of man's power or device, and its being carried on depends not on our strength, our wisdom, but yet God expects of all that we should use their utmost endeavors to promote it and that the hearts of all should be greatly engaged in this affair and that we should improve our utmost strength in it. However vain human strength is, without the power of God, we must go on. So you had an intellectual uh, that basically looked at this and said, this is of God. This was of God, what was happening. And when you think about it, uh, the, the, the uh, world was becoming... They were becoming more prosperous. Prosperous. They were becoming more economically prosperous. The country was growing. There was an influx of people that were coming in to this area. Uh, uh, initially, the churches were considered stale and, and, and dead. That's why the Baptists and the Quakers really started drawing a lot of people to them because the others were so tired of the, the state churches and the Anglican church and the congregational churches because they would become so cold and dry. And yet, even in the midst of this, when, when, when uh, uh, everything was ripe for a revival, he used a man that was not even really a great preacher, but he was an intellect. But he had a passion for God, and he used him... Uh, to spread that to the people 's hearts, I want to read a couple things uh, from uh, a couple more things from his works. Um, again, this is from uh, a treatise concerning religious affections. He said, "I am bold in saying this, but I believe that no one is ever changed either by doctrine, by hearing the word, or by the preaching or teaching of another, unless the affections are moved by these things." What is he talking about with the affections? What's he talking about? Emotions. Right? Yeah. Uh, You know, we don't talk about affections uh, uh, when we're talking about intellect. That's the thinking process. When he's talking about the affections, that speaks more of emotions. And so what Jonathan Edwards says here is an intellect says he doesn't believe that something like this or that no one has ever changed either by correct doctrine by hearing the word the word of god or by the preaching or teaching of another he said people are not changed by those things unless the affections are moved by these things now, i think that's in, that's significant because what jonathan edwards was saying is look while we cannot live our lives on emotions lewis knows what it's like uh, when People come in and their emotions are broken and they're scarred and they're hurting. And they're trying to find their moorings. They're trying to find the way to get through the next day. Because right now the emotions are just so prevalent right here before them. And it's hard to get past those things. And that's it's in times like that when we have to revert to doing what we know is the right thing to do. Because if we wait around to do the right thing until we feel like doing the right thing, we could get our lives into even bigger messes. So we can't live our lives on emotions. Dr. James Dobson wrote the book, Emotions. Can you trust him? And the obvious answer is no. Because you can be sky high one day and down in the valley the next day. So you can't rule your life on emotions. At the same time, you cannot experience True spiritual renewal and passion without your emotions. That's what Jonathan Edwards is saying. I think he's right. I think he's right. What is the one, if you will, emotion, but it's seated in a, de- a decision, but what's the one emotion that Jesus talks so much about? Can you think of it? Love. That's right. You know, sometimes we, you know, and, and it is, you know what, I, as I many times, I say in uh, wedding ceremonies, I say, you know what? There never, And I say to the couple in front of everybody, I said, there never has to be a day when you wake up and not be able to say, I love you and feel like a hypocrite. If you understand that love is a decision and a commitment that you make, there never has to be a day, even if you don't feel very loving to that person, there never has to be a day that you wake up, you take the hands of that person and say, I love you. Now, you may think in your heart, I don't like you right now, but I love you. <laughs> I love you. So I say, you never have to... Be, see, sometimes people just say, well, I just feel like I say that, I, I just feel like a hypocrite, so I won't say it at all. No, you don't have to. You just got to have the right perspective on it. You may be, you may be in a, a tough situation with that person right there, but you can still say, I love you. And you know what? They need to hear, I love you. If, if God thought it important enough to say, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and we're in the world. If God thought enough to say, I love you, then it stands to reason that as people we have to hear, I love you. And so you never have to feel like a hypocrite when saying, uh, saying that. But if you're talking about even a spiritual passion if the emotions are not engaged at least somewhere in there, then it becomes a dry exercise in intellectualism. It becomes a pursuit of knowledge. And sometimes people are relying so much on what they know about the Bible and how long they've been a Christian, but really their spiritual passion is gone. Why? Because the emotions have not been engaged. And Jonathan Edwards says, you can even have the the preaching of the Word of God, the t- preaching and teaching of someone else, and uh and, and all of these things, uh, great doctrine, and yet the person not even be moved. Now listen, no one ever seeks salvation. What does that sound like? Is that an Arminian quote or is that a Calvinist quote? Yeah. Yeah, he says, you know, based on what God's word says is that even no man comes to the father unless the father draws him or the spirit draws him, you know, so even when we get saved, it all starts with God. See, there's no reason to take Calvinism to its extremes. There's no reason to take predestination to the extremes and saying, you know, so now uh, we're not going to worry about evangelism because... If the elect or the elect, they're going to get saved anyway, so we won't worry about that. Well, there's no reason to take it to extremes like that because obviously the apostle Paul says, how how will they know? Faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God, how will they know unless a, a preacher preaches? So Paul was even acknowledging the very one who wrote the words about saying, yes, God chooses and God predestines. He's saying, but unless they, you, there's a response that's required. But Jonathan Edwards is saying right here, he says, no one seeks salvation. Now, there can be those that are seeking purpose or they're seeking something... ...and the the Lord says in Hebrews, God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him... As Pastor Fleming has been saying that, uh, as, and once again, John 6, he calls God the great seeker. It was God who is seeking us. But then also in Acts 17, it talks about that, uh, that he has placed it within us to, to seek him and to grope for him. And he is not far off, even if we might grope for him to find him. So God's put that within us. But you see, it all started with God. Because as human beings, we don't naturally seek salvation. It's God, you might think of it this way, it's God that whets our appetite to seek that which we're missing and that we desperately need. So, he says, no one seeks, ever seeks salvation. No one ever cries for wisdom. No one ever wrestles with God. No one ever kneels in prayer or flees from sin with a heart that remains unaffected. In a word... There is never any great achievement by the things of religion without a heart deeply affected by those things. Wow. Guy had some rich stuff to say, didn't he? Now, the reason why it was important that I read that to you before I read some excerpts from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, because you needed to hear the heart of that man. He desperately wanted people to know God and to walk in that knowledge of God. But I tell you what, he didn't pull any punches whenever he preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The, the text that it was taken from is Deuteronomy 32, 35, which simply says, Their foot shall slide in due time. And boy, did he go off on that verse. I want to just read some of the very first uh, lines of his message. In this, verse, uh, in this verse, is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites who were God's visible people and who lived under the means of grace, but who, notwithstanding all God's wonderful works towards them, remained, void of counsel, having no understanding in them. Under all the cultivations of heaven, they brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit, as in the two verses preceding the text. The expression, I have chosen for my text, their foot shall slide in due time seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction of which these wicked Israelites were exposed. I guess it would be... I wonder what Edward sounded like when he read that. You know, he said it wasn't too, Probably had a slightly British accent, don't you think, probably? That they were always exposed to destruction as one that stands or walks in slippery places is always exposed to fall. <laughs> this is implied in the manner... This is implied in the manner of their destruction coming upon them, being represented by their foot sliding, the same as expressed in Psalm seventy-two eighteen, Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, thou... Cascades them down into destruction. <laughs> Can you imagine? He goes on, some of the things he points out about the doctrine. He says, there is no want for power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist Him, nor can any deliver out of His hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but He can most easily do it. On the second point that He made, they deserve to be cast into hell so that divine justice never stands in the way. It makes no objection against God using His power at any moment to destroy them. His commentary goes on, Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth grapes of Sodom, Cut it down, why cumbereth it to the ground? Luke thirteen seven. The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy. And God's mere will that holds it back. Number three. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down thither, but the sent I just like that word, thither. So don't run with those thithers. I'm sorry. But the sentence of the law of God. That he I was up late last night, folks. I'm sorry. That eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between Him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them so that they are bound over already to hell. John 3.18 He that believeth not is condemned already so that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. Number four. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down into hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them, as He is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell who there feel and bear the fierceness of His wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with great numbers that are now on earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, who it may be are at ease, than He is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. He's just as angry with some in this congregation right now as he is with those in hell. Not this congregation, I'm talking about that congregation. (laughs) So that it is not because God is unmindful of their wickedness and does not resent it, that he does not let loose his hand and cut them off. Number five, the devil stands ready to fall upon them and seize them at his own at that moment. God shall permit him. And finally, there are the souls of wicked men whose hellish principles reigning that would presently kindle the flames out into hell's fire if they were not of God's restraints. It's kind of interesting to read those words. They're not the words that we say you grow a church with in our day and time. Churches were dead in that day and time. He was in relatively uninspiring speaker but it was evidence of the anointing of god's holy spirit that took those words and pierced the hearts of those people i think the one thing that i'd like for us to take away take uh, the point for home or as we take we leave here is remembering the words that jonathan Edwards said where you know what even the preaching of the word sound doctrine and the teaching of others will have no effect unless it affects the affections of the people, meaning our emotions. But when we leave here, I think this is especially apropos for this class because you've heard some of the best teaching and you've heard, you have been taught about church history and the Bible, the deep truths of the Bible. The important thing is what are you doing with that what are you doing with that because you see if the emotions are not hi come on in if the emotions are not engaged and if you become emotionally uh, dry then it's going to be all for nothing i know what mark's heart is mark's heart more than anything else with all of the teaching that you've received is that you would be people passionate for god and walking with God. That it's not just an intellectual pursuit. And that it would so affect your lives that you would see, and this is what I've been sharing, this is, this is just a, a conviction that I have come to over the last several years. Um, we are going to be starting faith, the evangelism program, in the fall. But if this church has the idea that that's our evangelism program, then we're never going to achieve what God wants us to achieve in this church and for His kingdom. Because God wants every one of us to see that we are ambassadors for Him. And it is absolutely essential that we have a passionate relationship with Him and a faith in Him. So that then when we... So, number one, that we are moved to go to our neighbors and our friends and our family, number one. And then number two, when we do go to our neighbors and our family and our friends, that they see the words that we speak and what we say is the most important thing to us, authenticated by our lives. They go hand in hand. The easiest type of evangelism, believe it or not, the easiest type of evangelism is to just get on a plane where you're riding beside somebody that you're going to go to a destination and when you get off the plane, you're going to go your separate ways. They don't know anything about you and you don't know anything about them. That's the easiest kind of evangelism because there's not really any accountability there. The toughest kind is when people are able to see how you live and whether or not your words really mean anything. These people, even though maybe they didn't like one thing he stood for a little bit later on in that church, Jonathan Edwards believed everything he said and he delivered it and he literally left it in the hands of God And God was the one that pierced the people's hearts. And as a result of that, revival broke out. And he used it for his glory. And even an intellectual stood back and said, "Whoa, this is a God thing. This is a God thing. He said it differently, but that's what he meant. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for those that have gone before us to pave the way. Thank you, Lord, for the examples that they set for us. And Lord, I pray that I'll be a person like that. And I pray that the people in this room will be people like that. And Lord, as you school us, as you teach us, as we grow in you, help us, Lord, to engage our passions and our emotions as well so that we will be a people truly on fire for you. Lord, I believe it's possible that another awakening just like that can happen again. When we least expect it, in the most unexpected ways, oh Lord, we pray that you would do that in our lives, in our community, in our state, in our country, and eventually across the world. Lord, let us begin to experience a little bit of what they experienced in that great awakening in this country and what other countries are experiencing where the church is growing by leaps and bounds, even underground sometimes. May we experience that here in our lives as well. When all we can do is stand back and say, this is a God thing. There's no other explanation. We pray that this would be the case. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.